Just so you know, particularly those of you who are either visiting for the first time or haven't been here long, we started going through the book of Ephesians way back in September, looking at one of the most basic fundamental letters in the New Testament about what a church is to be and what a Christian is to be. It's foundational, and that's why we decided to study it paragraph by paragraph, seeing what God might teach us and what uh, we can impart and apply to our lives individually and as a church. It's been a wonderful time of studying God's Word together. We are now picking up in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 20 to verse 24. And just a general outline, the first, actually the first four chapters and 19, 24 verses, for the most part, are Paul is trying to tell us what our position is in Christ, who you are in Christ, as an individual and as a church, your position in Christ. Then starting at verse 25, throughout the rest of the book, is your practice in Christ, your duty as a Christian. So first your position, then your practice. First the doctrine, then your duty. So starting at verse 25, which we begin looking at next week, from 25 on throughout the rest of the book, uh, Paul is going to pummel us with imperative after imperative after uh, commands, if you will, a machine gun. He's going to unload his arsenal of all these commands he expects Christians to do. But he's been laying the foundation before he gives us all of these commands for four chapters and 24 verses. So today actually is the last section where Paul is telling us our position in Christ. If you're a Christian, who you are in Christ before he unloads this barrel of uh, command starting at verse 25 throughout the rest of the book. Because Paul is clear to us, you cannot be expected to live like a Christian unless you first understand the foundation of being a Christian. You can't be obedient until you understand why you can be obedient and who you are in Christ. So that's the uh, importance of the foundation he's laying in the first four chapters. Your position as Christ is this, so in light of who you are in Christ, live like this. Um, so very important, very practical. So we're going to look at the last section there, but follow along with me as I read Ephesians 4, actually 17 through 24, because they, they kind of go together, 17 through 24. First, he's talking about unbelievers, people who do not know Christ, and even the Ephesian Christians, what they were like before they became Christians. So that's the first section, what an unbeliever is like, and then he contrasts what an unbeliever is like, telling us what a Christian is like, verses 20 through 24, and that's what we want to highlight here. Uh, Starting at verse 17, uh, Paul says this, I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk or live a lifestyle no longer just as the Gentiles or unbelievers also live their life or walk in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance or literally atheism that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, and they, unbelievers, having become callous, or desensitized to the things of God, have given themselves over willingly to sensuality and all kinds of sin for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, Christian, you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, You have laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you have and that you are renewing and that you are being renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse twenty four, and that you have put off the old self, which in the likeness of God has been put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So let's go ahead and look in verses twenty to twenty four. I titled the message just remember who you are, because 
Paul, he, may, he wants to make three main points here in verses 20 to 24. And it's simply this. Christian, before I tell you all these things that you need to obey, before I give you a flurry of 50 commands, you need to remember who you are in Christ. And he wants us to do it two ways. Remember who you are as a Christian in light of two things. What you used to be like before you got saved and what you are like now since you got saved. Remember who you are. That will help you live an obedient Christian and balanced Christian life. And that's the last time, two weeks ago, Paul reminded us of what we used to be like when we were a pagan or literally not saved, not a Christian. Well, starting at verse 17, just by way of reminder to put it in context. What is an unbeliever like? Or you can ask yourself, particularly if you got saved later in life, kind of like I did in college, what was I like? What is my biography before I became a Christian? Well, Paul tells us 17 through 19, just read it. Uh, This is applying to those who are not Christians. Uh, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you don't walk or live a lifestyle just as those who are not saved live. How do they live? In the futility of their minds, foolishly in their minds. They are foolish in their understandings, and their, their thinking is skewed from God's perspective. They cannot understand spiritual truth, legitimately as God has given it, because of sin. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're darkened from sin. That's why they can't see. That's why they're foolish. So they're darkened. They are excluded from the life of God. They don't have spiritual life. They don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. That is the only way that a Christian can truly understand the depths of God's Word is because the Holy Spirit lives inside the Christian. The Holy Spirit is our teacher. That's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit has the ongoing ministry of illumination, enlightening us to these truths so that we can understand it and apply it to our life. An unbeliever, he's excluded from the life of God, does not have salvation, doesn't have the Holy Spirit, doesn't have a resident teacher of spiritual truth in their life. So they can't apply these things to their, into their life. But they don't want to anyway. Why? He goes on in verse 18, because of the ignorance that is in them, literally atheism. They are atheistic. And it's not passive, it is active. Well, how do they get atheistic? Why don't they want to believe? They don't want to believe when they hear the truth. Why is that? Because of the hardness of their heart. Sin has hardened them. That was true of me before I got saved. That's what Paul says in Romans. We talked about that. A hardened heart, finally, and then verse 19, and that they, unbelievers, having become, they have, when you keep sinning and sinning and sinning and violating your conscience, conscience, eventually you get a hardened conscience, a seared conscience. Sin becomes easier to perform. That's scary. So when they keep rejecting God and rejecting God and rejecting God, their, their conscience becomes callous, and then eventually they manifest sin in every conceivable manner, having given themselves wholesale over to sensuality and the practice of every kind of impurity, immorality, greediness, and lust. Man, that characterizes our world today. That characterizes television and the movies, doesn't it? And the videos. This is, that's a living example of a fulfillment of what Paul is saying is that an unsaved lifestyle is like. That's what's going on. In, that is a diagnosis of the heart and the inner man of an unbeliever. We as humans, we can't do that. Only God looks upon the heart. But that's what he has revealed. That's what's going on in the unsaved heart that eventually manifests, manifests itself through actions, words, attitudes. And then the good news. So let's go on to our passage of the day, verses 20 to 24. That's the bad news. That's yucky sin. But we've been saved And Paul says, but, that's a big but, it's an adversative, contrast, huge. That's not you, Christian, anymore anyway, it used to be. Not anymore, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him, Christ, and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. So verses 20 and 21, they are transitional. That's a transitional passage between what an unbeliever is like and what a Christian is like. So let's look at the transitional verses there before we get to our... Outline there. 
But you, Christian, you didn't learn Christ in this way. Well, when did we learn Christ? Well, and he's reminding them, the Ephesian Christians, well, when you heard about Christ, well, when did they hear about Christ? Well, when Paul came into Ephesus, uh, probably eight years before this letter was written, and he came to plant a church. And he went into this Gentile, pagan, unbelieving city, and he began going door to door and going in Jewish synagogues, preaching the gospel, talking about Jesus Christ, repentance of sin, the resurrection, one-on-one, house-to-house for three and a half years. Paul spread the gospel wherever he possibly could in the city of Ephesus until some people responded, believed, became Christians, and then Paul took them in, trained them, discipled them, pastored them, trained up leadership, planted a church. He was a church planter. Trained up elders reminded and exhorted his elders to take care of the church, and then Paul left. So Paul is reminding them, you, you got saved. Remember when I came and proclaimed the gospel? When you heard about Jesus for the first time, I told you about him. You heard about Jesus, and then he says uh, that you learned, when you learned Christ, that was, it's aorist tense, it's referring to something that happened in the past. That means when they believed. Because some, they heard this message about this Jesus, this Messiah, who died for sin and rose again from the dead, the Holy Spirit worked on their hearts, and they believed and they became Christians. That's what he's referring to. When you became a Christian, you did not learn Christ in the way that Gentiles live. And that phrase there, verse 20, when you become a Christian, we learn Christ. We come to know Christ. That's what Jesus said. If you remember that verse, we talked about what is eternal life? Jesus defined that for us in John 17, 3. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know Jesus Christ. It's not doing religious things. It's not doing the Ten Commandments. It's not doing anything. It is coming to know Jesus Christ as a person, intimately, for who He is and what He did on our behalf. That is becoming a Christian. That is eternal life. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you came, when I told you about Christ, and you learned Him, you came into a relationship with Him, you began to know Him personally. And the implication here of the verse that Paul uses on learn is that this is an ongoing thing for Christians too. We grow in our relationship with Christ by learning more and more about Him. Think about your own life. Those of you that have been saved many years, do you know Jesus better today than you did the moment you got saved? I know I, know I did. I know Him more intimately. I know Him better. I know Him in a more balanced way. I know Him in a more biblical way. And when I first got saved, I had a true knowledge of Him. It was sincere but it was a childlike knowledge, but I still got saved. And that's what Paul's saying. When you learned Christ, and you continue to learn Christ, but when you learned Christ the first time, when you got saved, you began a new lifestyle. When you got saved, God gave you a new worldview. When you got saved, God gave you the ability to have a perception of the world like you never had before. That's what he's saying. Remember who you are. Remember when you got saved. Remember what you were committed to when Christ delivered you from your sins. Verse 21, when you heard about him through the gospel... And also, and then he goes on, and have been taught in him. Think about those three and a half years I was with you, Ephesians. For three and a half years, I taught you all about Jesus. Everything I taught you about Jesus. Remember all that stuff I told you. Remember who you are. You are not an unbeliever. You shouldn't be living like these people. You shouldn't be acting like an unbeliever. You shouldn't be thinking like an unbeliever. You shouldn't be exposing yourself to the things of the unbelieving world. Don't do that. Remember who you are in Christ. So he's trying to bring them to their senses. Now, Paul had been gone about five years. He'd been away from this church for about five years. So he's checking up on him, and he had heard some things. Some of the things he heard about this church that he planted and had pastored and trained the leadership for it it was not good news. They began to waver a little bit and stray a little bit. 
And negative sinful influences and false teaching began to creep into the church. So he's given them a wake-up call. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember what I taught you when you were there. Do not act like that. So, that, so now we'll transition into the uh, main chunk of the passage there, and that's verses 22 to 24. And there's three things there that Paul wants to remind them of what he taught them when he was with them. Now, if you were looking at just verses 20 to 24, and you wanted to know the main verb in this passage, it's in verse 21, and the main verb there is have been taught. It's the main verb. It's an indicative. It means it's just a statement of fact. It's a reality. You were taught specific things when I was with you. I taught you very specific doctrine after you became a Christian, and you need to remember those things. So that's the main verb. And then he's going to say, remember the three, these three things I want you to keep in mind that I taught you. And those are the three infinitives in verse 22, 23, and 24. So if you wanted to circle those, those are our three main points. Well, what was it that Paul taught the Ephesians? What was it that they believed when he taught them? Verse 22, the first thing that he taught them uh, when, they re- when they became Christians was that they set aside the old self. They set aside the old self. Now, I need to warn you here. We need to kind of fix the translation in verses 22 to 24. Uh, or I just need to. So if, you, if you're one of those people that actually writes in your Bible, you can circle a couple things. Uh, the thing you need to know is that in verse 22, where it says, You lay aside the old self, the New American Standard says that, it almost sounds like a command. It's not a command in your Greek text. It literally should say, You have laid aside the old self. So it's more like an indicative, it's something that already happened. Now, the reason this is important is if you read it like the New American Standard has it, or as the NIV has it, you might get the implication that this is a command Paul is telling us to do, that we need to do this over and over and over again. Oh, Paul's telling us we need to lay aside the old self over and over and over again. He is not saying that. Because the verb there is not an indicative. It is not, uh, I mean, it is not an imperative. It is not a command. Paul is not telling us to do that. It's a statement of reality. It's an infinitive. It just means this is true. When you became a Christian... You laid aside the old self. You laid aside the old man. When, when, actually, it was Jesus. When Jesus saved us, he laid aside our old man. He transformed us. He made us new. We became a new creature. So very important. So that's the way I'm going to be reading this passage today. Uh, this is not a command. This is an indicative. It is a statement of reality. God has already laid aside the old self of the believer. Then uh, look at verse 23. Same thing. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That also is not a command. Again, that's an infinitive. And it's a statement of fact. It is reality. This has already happened. This is, and that one is present tense. All that means is that this is something that God is doing in you continually right now in your life. God is renewing your inner man in the spirit of your mind. That's an ongoing action that God is doing in your life. This is not a command. This is something that God is already doing. And then finally in verse 24, the other main verb there, put on the new self. Again, that is not an imperative. It is not a command. Paul is not telling us to do that. He's not commanding us to do that. It is an infinitive And it literally should say, you have put on the new self. This is something Jesus did for you when you got saved. You became a new creature, a new person. And the terminology he's using here is metaphorical. He's talking about when you take off your dirty clothes, you throw them in the hamper, and you put on new clothes. It's a one-time act. That's what he's saying. God took your dirty clothes filled with sin, Got rid of it forever. He put on your new clothes that are perfect, total forgiveness, white and pristine because of your relationship with Christ. And ever since then, he has been renewing your spirit in the inner man through the ministry of the Holy Spirit on your mind and on your soul. That's what he's saying. You need to remember those three things, Christian. 
So let's go ahead and look at those three things that we need to remember as Christians to help us live the Christian life so that we can obey God in the right way. So here's the three things Paul wants us to remember. I'm just going to highlight those three. The first one is remember, Christian, that at conversion, when you got saved, you put off the old self. Number two, remember, Christian, that you are, present tense, being renewed in your mind. That's verse 23, and then verse 24. And number three, remember, Christian, that at conversion, when you became a Christian, you put on the new self. Now, go to 2 Corinthians um, 5.17, because in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul restates this great truth, that when you became a Christian, God took your dirty laundry of yourself, of your sin, and he threw it away in the hamper forever and burned it, and gave you a new set of clothes, total forgiveness forever. A one-time historical fact that is a reality today. Parallel terminology, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man, woman, child is in Christ, if any person is a true Christian, then they are a new creature, a new creation. There's the new man. There's your new clothes. The old things have passed away. Your old man, your sinful self, all your sin, your old laundry was done away. This is past tense, by the way, it's already done. And Jesus did that. He's the master laundry man, by the way. And behold, the good news... New things have come. All things are new for the Christian. That is exactly what Paul is talking about. Same thing in Ephesians. He repeats this also in Colossians chapter 3, the same truth. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and let's look at these three great truths. First one is, remember, Christian, that at conversion, you put off the old self. And that's verse 22. That in reference to your former manner of life, when you were not a Christian, you have laid aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of your deceit. Actually, when you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, you trusted in Christ, we put, and we put our commitment in Christ, Jesus actually is the one who put off our old self because he forgave us of our sin, he took our dirty laundry, as I said, and he threw it away. So we, our old life has already been put off. The old man has been done away with. You, don't, you are not an unbeliever anymore, and therefore Paul's going to say, don't live like an unbeliever. Since you're not an unbeliever, don't live like one. That's what he's getting at. So remember... God has put off your old self. You have put off your old self with the help of God. Now, then there's three practical applications from this, of this pastime event of God putting off our old self. Uh, Letter A, and it's talking about conversion. When you got saved, it was at a specific moment in time. It happened at a specific moment in time. You got saved at a specific moment of time. In other words, salvation is not a process. Salvation isn't something that happens over time gradually. And you're saved today a little more than you were yesterday, and I'm saved a little bit more tomorrow than I am today. Salvation is not a process. In the New Testament, and this is a distinctive of biblical Christianity. Christianity, according to the Bible, is the only religion on planet Earth that teaches us that salvation, getting right with God, happens in a historical moment of time. It is not a process. At a specific moment of time. And related to that is B. When you get saved at a specific moment of time, it is a done deal. It is a finalized transaction accomplished by Christ in His death and resurrection. That's why when Jesus was on the cross dying, one of the last things Jesus said on the cross as He was being punished for our sin. By the way, when Jesus was on the cross being punished, He was being punished by who? He's being punished by the Father. For what? For our sin, as our substitute. Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus willingly subjected himself to the wrath of Almighty God on behalf of our sins. That is the good news. 
But if you trust in Jesus' death and resurrection on your behalf, you can become a Christian and have all of your sins forgiven. So Jesus is hanging on the cross for over six hours, and before his last breath, he knew what he was doing, dying for the sins of the world. He knew that he had accomplished everything God required of him regarding sin and wrath. And when he was done, he said, It is finished. Tetelestai, one word. A past, historical, completed action with ongoing results forever. Jesus died in the past for me. I have ongoing forgiveness of sin. Day after day after day after day. And continually, Jesus forgave all of my sins based on that past action. It's a done deal. Jesus said, it is finished. In other words, there is nothing else that you can do to add to his salvation. There's nothing that we as humans can do in terms of human actions to appease God or earn his favor or earn his forgiveness or earn his love. We can't do it. We are helpless. The only thing that we can bring is our sin, isn't it? And our prayer of repentance. God, be merciful to me, the sinner of the sinner cried. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. It is everything that Jesus did. It's nothing we do. And Jesus' death is final. It was total. It was complete. It was comprehensive. And as a result, his sacrifice was totally sufficient. Salvation is a done deal from God's perspective. So Paul's saying, don't you remember, Christian, that when you got saved at the point of conversion, you laid aside the old self. You laid aside your sin when Jesus saved you. And he saved you at a specific moment in time when you gave your life to him. As a result, the Holy Spirit working on you. And when he gave you salvation, it was complete salvation. It's a done deal. Total forgiveness. Final and completed. This leads us to an important point. Uh, There are even some Christians who would say that, because I'm saying salvation is a done deal, Uh, Because it's a done deal, we can know with confidence that we are saved. Did you know that? Do you know with confidence that you are saved, you are a Christian, all your sins are forgiven, and that you are going to heaven? Can you say that with confidence? Not every Christian can. And there are even Christians who say, you're not supposed to believe that way. It is impossible to believe that way. There is no guarantee. You could lose your salvation. You don't know if you're saved or not. There are people in Christianity that teach that. That is not true. The Bible is very clear. If you're a Christian, you've been born again, God has given you the promise that you can know it right now. One of the main ways that you can know that is the moment you become a Christian, He gives you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And the Holy Spirit of God that lives in the Christian, His Spirit bears witness with our spirit so that we have the confidence crying out to God, calling Him Abba, Father. That's what Romans says. He is my daddy. He is my father. He is my God. I know Him personally. I have confidence. I'm going to heaven. I know Him now. You can have that confidence. In other verses, Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, past tense, Paul said. De facto, black and white, dogmatic. You can know in this life that you are a Christian and you are saved. That is awesome. That is an awesome. That gives great stability and peace of mind to the Christian. 1 John 5.11, John the Apostle said this. Just listen to this and I'll read it to you. 1 John Two great, wonderful promises where John tells us, you can know in this life that you are a Christian. Uh, Verse 11, he says, and this is the witness of the Holy Spirit, that God has given us eternal life in His Son. God has given, past tense, He has given the Christian eternal life. How long does eternal life last? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I can keep going. Forever and ever. So you can't lose your salvation, because if you lost your salvation, you did not have eternal life that lasts forever. God has given us, past tense, eternal life in Christ. And then he seals it with this, verse 13. I am writing this epistle to you as an apostle, to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God, in order that, for the purpose that, you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to know that you're saved if you're a Christian. 
Amen. Amen. And that's what Paul's saying here. So go back to Ephesians 4. Remember, Christian, at at conversion, you put off the old self. You are a believer. You are saved. Thank you, Paul, for the great reminder. Then he just, uh, letter C there, he goes on. When you were not saved, the old corrupt self, the dirty laundry that Jesus threw away by way of reminder was a corrupting influence. Because that's what he says. The old self is being corrupted by deceit. Being corrupted, present tense. If you are not a Christian, you are being corrupted in an ongoing way, day after day after day after day. That's what Paul's saying here. So when you were not saved, you were being corrupted on the inside. Being corrupted, being corrupted. And the corruption was growing and spreading like gangrene. And this, you know, this is important to keep in mind because that means that Christians who go day to day to day with rejecting Christ, they're not getting better. They're getting worse. Corruption, poisoning their soul. You know, statistics tell us that it's more people get saved while they're younger than when they're older. That's just a statistic, but it's interesting. So anyway, remember, Christian, that uh, at conversion, you put off the old self. You got saved in Christ in a moment of time. Okay, let's go on to Paul's second point. Remember, Christian, that you are being renewed in your mind. And that's verse 23. You are being renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is present tense. Four implications of the fact that it is present tense. Letter A, that we're being renewed. It's ongoing. This is an ongoing process. You got saved once. You don't keep getting saved. You got saved one time. But there is an ongoing ministry of God and the Holy Spirit in your life as a Christian. It's ongoing. That's what this is. It's this ministry of God renewing our spirit and renewing our mind. It's ongoing, present tense, continual. Why is it ongoing? Because the Holy Spirit took up residence in your soul the moment you got saved, and the Holy Spirit has a ministry to do. He's got the rest of your life to clean you up and clean me up on the inside. That's what he's doing. So this is an ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's renewing us on the inner man inside, particularly through the ministry working with our mind. You're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. It's ongoing. B, it's also a process. It is a process. Now, salvation is a one-time act. It is not a process. And in the Bible, we call that justification. Justification, a one-time act where you put your faith in Christ, you were justified, you were made right with God. You got saved. That's the doctrine of justification. The moment you got saved. Then there's another doctrine in the Bible called sanctification. This is a process, unlike justification. Justification, one-time act. Sanctification, ongoing process. that happens in every Christian's life, all of their days, till Jesus comes or until you die and go to heaven. The, the doctrine of sanctification. The Holy Spirit inside of you, sanctifying you, making you holy, setting you apart, doing everything He can to make you holy and obedient. That's His ministry. That's what He wants to do. He's the comforter. He indwells you, Christian. Your body is his temple, and he has this ministry that is a process called sanctification, and it is ongoing. And by the way, sanctification isn't us doing good works. It is the Holy Spirit working in us. The Holy Spirit is the one doing the sanctification. Now, we can comply out of obedience and help the process, or as stubborn, disobedient sinners that Christians sometimes are, we can complicate matters and make the process of sanctification for the Holy Spirit a little more difficult. But he's omnipotent and he'll carry it out anyway. And if we get stubborn and resist the Holy Spirit, he will sanctify us. That is his promise. That is his goal. And, the, and God will use certain means to help us get sanctified even if we resist in sin. He'll bring things into our life. This is what Hebrews 12 is all about. That God the Father who loves us, he's going to chasten and discipline Christians as a father loves his dear son because he wants us to grow and mature. In other words, God is going to give us spiritual spankings. Ow, spankings hurt. 
So God will bring hardships into our life to discipline us, to chasten us, to help us grow in the sanctification process. And explicitly in Hebrews 12, Paul talks about hardships. I mean, the author of Hebrews says hardships. Paul also talks about things like suffering, church discipline, other Christians who exhort you and hold you accountable. The Word of God and its truth. The Holy Spirit inside. All these things. God is, through the sanctification process, He's trying to take every Christian and squeeze us into the mold of Christ. And it's a hard squeeze. But that's what He's doing. It's a great promise. The ministry and the doctrine of sanctification. It is a process. Uh, and coupled with that, it is, that's letter C, it's lifelong. The ministry of sanctification is lifelong. In other words, uh, we never arrive at perfect holiness in this life, although some people think they have. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, John Wesley was a great man. I love John Wesley. read a biography on him uh, back in the 1700s, I think it was, or the 1800s. Very influential. Wrote some great hymns. Some of my fav- greatest favorite hymns were written by John and Charles Wesley. Uh, but unfortunately, some of the descendants of John Wesley took one of his doctrines uh, called perfect love and have formalized it into a doctrine today that is taught in certain Christian churches that we can reach perfection in this life. Seriously, I know people like that who believe that and teach it. Perfection in this life. When's the last time you sinned? Uh, I think about three months ago. I mean, I've literally heard that said. Wow. Liar, you just sinned. I can't say that. I can't say three months ago. Um, Let's see, what time is it? (laughs) So it's lifelong. Paul said this. Philippians 3.12, listen to what Paul said. He's talking about when he became a Christian and how he's pursuing righteousness and he's pursuing holiness in his life and the way he's doing it, he's focusing on Christ and I was an apostle. I mean, I'm an apostle now and I used to be a Pharisee and I was a great guy and I was influential in the Jewish life and I came to Christ and I'm pursuing holiness and then he says this, But I haven't obtained it yet. I have not obtained it. I never will obtain it in this life. And then in Romans 7, he told us that he had sin living in him. No good thing lives in me. And he concludes, frustrated, oh wretched man that I am. Because Paul came to realize, I am never going to be perfect in this life. Because I have sin living in me. The residual of sin and the consequences of sin in him. So it's lifelong. But thank God for his grace... Because when we do have sin, we can go to Christ as a believer anytime if you have sin and confess your sin and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Did you know that the gospel doesn't just save the unbeliever and makes them a Christian? Did you know that the gospel is just as necessary for the Christian as for the non-Christian? Because I know I need forgiveness of Jesus Christ through His death every day of my life. The gospel is for Christians too. We live by the gospel. Paul lived by the gospel. Because we're sinners, we all have feet of clay. James said, we all stumble. Literally, we all sin. And we all sin in many ways. We're professional, creative sinners. So it's lifelong. And then the last point, uh, this ministry of sanctification, what is it? It's internal. It's not on the outside. It's not exterior. It's not pharisaical. Uh, The New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Colossians condemns pharisaical man-made rules that people try to do in order to get more holy out of sheer willpower and gut determination. That is not spirituality. That's not true Christianity. It's not all about the externals. Do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Somebody starts saying that, that's pharisaical. That is not healthy. That is not Christian. 
Because that's emphasizing the outside, which only man can see. And what the bigger problem is on the inside that only God can see, right? And that's why the ministry of sanctification happens on the inside, because God is the only one who can do that, because He's the only one that knows our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, and He's the only one that can convict us and change those things. It's a ministry on the inside. It is eternal. It's not external. And I just want to read, uh, go to second, if you have your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians 4. This is a great truth. This is actually kind of a bittersweet truth. I read this one, or I quoted it in high school, Sunday school class today. And when I said the second part of the, or first part of the verse, I got some really down, sad faces. They're like, oh, that's terrible. And this is what it is. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Therefore, do not lose heart, Christian. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Yeah, that's true. Though our outer body or outer man is decaying, we are dying on the outside, aren't we? Amen. We are dying on the outside. Yet, on the inner man is being renewed day by day. That is exactly what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 4. The ongoing ministry of sanctification inside the believer. It is internal. It's on the inside. The inner man. What is the inner man? The inner man is referring to things, the intangible things we can't see. The inner man is that which leaves your body and goes to be with Jesus the moment you die. That's the inner man. It is the heart. It is the soul. It is the spirit. It is the mind. All these terms are used in the New Testament and the Old Testament refer to the inner man. It is the you that lasts forever and eternally. Not your physical body. It's on the inside. That's what needs to be changed. That's what needs to be transformed. That's what needs to be molded. That's why it's so important to know. It is eternal. It's not legalistic, man-made rules of religion. That is not going to do it. Well, what is it that does it on the inside? Well, it's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's living on the inside of us, and I already alluded to that. And He is wooing us. He is convicting us. He is teaching us. He is prompting us. He is comforting us. All these things on the inside the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. And regardless of what's going on in your life, sickness, frustration, death, hardship, employment issues. As a Christian, you can always be encouraged because you always have the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit deep within your soul. And you can know the greatest, deepest joy in the midst of any misery on earth because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us. It is internal. And by the way, one last thing in light of these four points, I need to say this is a reality. The ministry of the Holy Spirit working on every Christian on the inside that is ongoing and continual and progressive and lifelong and on the inside, it is a reality. It is a truth. Now, the reason that I say that and it's important is because if... If you look at another Christian, never should another Christian say to another Christian, you are never going to change. Because that just undermines this truth. Because Paul said, no, the Holy Spirit, that's his job is to make you change from the inside out. The Holy Spirit is trying to reform patterns of behavior, sinful patterns of behavior. Now, it's going to take time. And these changes, sometimes we don't see, do we, in other people? Sometimes it takes years and years and years. The Holy Spirit, he has a lot of work to do. We've got some hardened sinners here. We've got some bad habits here. But it's guaranteed he's going to do that. That's why it is offensive. You should never say that to another Christian. This, is, this has wonderful practical implications in your family life. You should never say this to your kid, especially if your kid is a Christian. You should never say this to your spouse, if your spouse is a Christian. You should never say this to a fellow believer if they are a Christian. It's rather, boy, the Holy Spirit has a lot of work to do in you, doesn't he? Boy, he's not making much headway. You're getting in his way. Now, that's more biblical. <laughs> But it is a reality. 
You are being changed. And by the way, this is in the passive tense, the verb there. All that means is that it's not something you do to yourself. It is something being done to you. God the Father, the Holy Spirit is doing it to you. He is doing it. We're not doing it ourselves. We can't. So it's guaranteed. That is good news. Praise the Lord. We are being renewed in our mind. And by the way, the key, Paul refers to the mind here. The mind is key to everything. You are what you think. You speak what you think. You do what you think. Your attitude is what you think. The mind, the mind, the mind. Paul continually puts emphasis on the mind, protecting your mind, shielding your mind, guarding your mind, guarding your eyes as it takes information goes directly to your mind. You are what you think. That's why he lays four chapters down of things you should think as a Christian. Doctrine you should believe because it will affect your behavior. Your mind. Protect your mind. Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are you exposing your mind to, Christian? What kind of TV are you watching? What uh, movies are you watching? What are you reading? What are you watching on the internet? What kind of music do you listen to? What kind of conversation do you expose yourself to? The mind. It's key. My, God wants mind control. He wants to reprogram us. Brainwashing, if you will, but it's the legitimate kind. Biblical brainwashing. I'd like to be biblically brainwashed. So let's go on to the last point Paul makes, and that is, remember, Christian, that at conversion, you put, you put on the new self. Verse 24. You put off the old self, where actually Jesus did it for you. The Holy Spirit is renewing your mind continually, and so that's optimistic. You are going to grow, whether you like it or not. God is committed to your holiness. He's going to make you holy whether you like it or not. And he may have to arm wrestle you in the process. And then finally, the third truth is, remember, Christian, at conversion, you put on the new self. Got rid of the bad, put on the new. You got saved. You became a new man. We already read 2 Corinthians. You became a new creature. Verse 24, and put on, you have put on the new self, which, notice, the new self. What happened when you became a Christian, by the way? Paul tells us. Well, when you became a new Christian, you were made in the likeness of God. You were recreated in God's image, in Christ, the very image of Christ. Did you know that when God the Father looks down from heaven on earth at Christians, he sees Christ? That's our position in Christ. He sees perfection, really. Despite all of our practical, sinful foibles, shortcomings, positionally, he looks down and he sees Christ. We have been recreated in the image of Christ. That's awesome. So that's letter A. We are created in God's image, recreated in God's image. Every human being was created in God's image, literally, physically, as a human being. And then spiritually, if you become born again, you are recreated in God's image, literally, after the model and pattern of Christ. So, Christian, you were created, recreated in Christ's image, and as a result, you have been created in righteousness. God is righteous, totally. That means without sin, he's totally righteous, and he created you to be righteous. He made you righteous at justification. Totally forgave all of your sins. That's what it means to be righteous. You were forgiven of all of your sin. Therefore, we should live in light of that fact that we've been forgiven of all our sin, a holy and righteous life. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Uh, Just a couple of points there. Letter B, Christians are pursuing righteous living before men. When you become a Christian, you get a new attitude, a new desire, a new worldview, a new perspective, and according to Jesus... Christians hunger and thirst after righteousness, or at least they should, shouldn't they? That should be the inner desire of your heart. So as a Christian, sometimes you can get frustrated because of sin in your life. I know I do. It's frustrating. God, am I ever going to get rid of and shake this sin in my life? Answer, probably not. That's the bad news. But the reality, the encouraging reality that as a Christian, despite my own sin, you know what? I still have hunger for righteousness. I want to live right. I want to obey God. That is a desire he put in my heart. I did not have that desire before I became a Christian. 
I didn't. I was resisting truth, resisting obedience, deep down in my soul. But when you become a Christian, God makes you a new creature, and He puts the desire and hunger and the thirst for righteousness deep in your soul. So despite your ongoing sin, if you still have some residual desires of the righteous things of God and obedience to Him, that is a good sign. That is healthy. That's an encouraging thing. That can motivate us from day to day. That, by the way, that can motivate us to repentance is where we should be. So the believers desire righteousness. They desire obedience. And then letter C, Paul says, maintaining a holy attitude before God. When you got saved, when you were converted, when you put on the new man, you were made righteous, and also you were made holy. Positionally, we were made holy, which means we were without sin. Totally forgiven of all of our sins. But practically speaking, we are also made holy in our daily living through the indwelling Holy Spirit, making us holy, becoming more like Christ in our daily living, hopefully over the course of our time. So we maintain a holy attitude before God. Every Christian should be holy. Jesus said, be holy for I am holy. And like I said, God is committed to making all of us holy, and He will. He will pursue us. He will persist. And we can either comply, and if we do, like I said, resist, then He's going to hound us, and He's going to discipline us, and He's going to chasten us to the point of holiness. That's why James can say in James chapter 1, consider it all, what? Joy when you encounter various, what? Trials in life. Why in the world should I be joyful over trials, temptations, misery, hardship, sorrow in my life? James' point is because God is making you holy through the process. He's forcing you to depend upon Him. That's why you should have joy. God is making you holy. Practically speaking, you're already holy, positionally speaking. Then finally, letter D. Everything that Paul just said, these three great truths, that Christian, when you became a Christian... Your old man, your old self, your old dirty clothes were taken off. Totally and completely. You are totally forgiven. And God gave you the Holy Spirit, and He is renewing you, and working in you, and encouraging you, and teaching you, and it's an ongoing, lifelong process. Making you Christ-like. And finally, Christian, remember that God put on that new self when you got saved. He made you a new creation in Christ. And Paul is just saying this is all consistent with the truth. This is all consistent with the truth. Everything that a Christian believes, everything that a Christian, their whole worldview is consistent with truth. Everything needs to be taken through the grid of the Bible, which is God's revealed truth in Scripture. He started out that passage by saying that Jesus is the truth, or truth is in Jesus. We can know truth. Did you know today the worldview that dominates our society is called postmodernism? And what does postmodernism say? Well, you can't know that anything's true. You cannot, in fact, de facto, with confidence, know that anything is true. And here are two times, at the beginning of the passage, the end of the passage, Paul says emphatically that truth is in Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And because you are a Christian, you committed your life to Christ, you believed in the gospel, truth has been imparted to you, Christian. You have truth. You have black and white. You have security. You have the true knowledge of God. And in, in Corinthians, Paul says that you even have the mind of Christ. Isn't that an amazing statement? You have the mind of Christ. That is awesome. Well, anyway, uh, just what a great time to be reminded by Paul of these three great truths. And then next week, we're going to start looking at how we're supposed to live in light of these great truths. So this week, just rejoice in who you are. Remember who you are, Christian. Saved and equipped totally because of your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and close in prayer and thank God for our time together. Father, we do thank you for today. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for the gathering of the saints. Uh, thank you for the treasure of your word, the Bible. It is, it is true. We can believe it. You said so. 
Thank you for Jesus. He is truth. He told us so. You've revealed these things to us, God, and you've given us the Holy Spirit so we can understand them, which is glorious. And also, God, now just help us apply it to our life. And keep reprogramming our thought life, which is prone to selfish thoughts, sinful thoughts, wrong thoughts. God, we need your help. We need the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Thank you for these encouraging great truths from Paul, uh, reminding us of who we are in Christ. I just pray that you bless our day in a special way as we commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.